You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word. We thank you for it. We thank you that though this book was written 3,000 years ago, it seems as if it is speaking of events that are happening in our own time, in our own life. Your word is so relevant and so true and so contemporary. We pray that we may see that today and that my preaching and, and our distractions may not get in the way of us understanding what you have for us in this passage. Grant that you might send your spirit to be our teacher this morning and that your glory may be our concern. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to begin looking at the passage that is in verses 10 through 15. Have you ever noticed that children have seemingly a a pretty keen sense of what is fair in life? It seems that one of our first moral discoveries is that life is not quite fair, that things are not quite fair. Children seem to pick up on this really early when Their sibling gets to have ice cream and go out with the family to dinner while they were stuck spending the night at a friend's house and they had hamburger helper and and maybe a Twinkie for dessert and everybody else got to enjoy something better. They come out and they find out that that is the case. What do they say? That's not fair. That wasn't fair. Or when their sibling gets a piece of dessert that they think looks bigger than their piece of dessert, it might actually be smaller, but it's spread out to look bigger. They think that they've been shorted and so that they protest with what? That's not fair. And all we can do as parents is reinforce for them. It seems like our only recourse is to affirm that moral intuition. You're right. It's not fair. So when they whine, that's not fair. That's exactly what it sounds like, usually accompanied with fingers on a chalkboard sound in my ears. Then the only thing we as parents can do is say, you're right. That's not fair. It's not fair because life isn't fair. That's not fair because life isn't fair. And because life isn't fair, it's not fair that I have to sit here and listen to you whine about it not being fair when there are other parents who are enjoying quiet time on a beach somewhere with a good book and a lemonade, and I have to be here cooking you dinner while you complain that life isn't fair. You're right. Life is not fair. Nothing is fair. Congratulations, Columbus, on such a great discovery. Now we can move on with the rest of life. And now you try mixing a little bit of sarcasm because sarcasm makes the medicine go down. At least that's my parenting philosophy. <laughs> now, sometimes in life it is easy to get over some of the, uh, the inequities. They're easy to forget. Like you're standing at a cafe or a sandwich shop or a bistro or a coffee shop or something, and you let somebody else go in front of you and order, and it turns out they order the exact same thing that you were going to order, and then you step up to order only to find out that they ordered the very last thing that, of that item that you were going to order, and there are no more to be found anywhere in the county So now you have to order something different. That doesn't seem fair. Or it doesn't seem fair that you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, you know, every other church in this county has air conditioning. And they're nice and cool right now. And because my wife made us late, or my husband, whatever the case may be, right? But we all know it's the women, so my wife made us late. I was not able to get one of the good seats that are next to the four corners where the fans are positioned. So now we have to sit here and sweat it out with the saints. And life is full of injustices. Now, those are easy to get over because you forget about all of those by tomorrow morning. But when it happens to the wicked, according to the deeds of the righteous, 
And it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked. That is much more difficult to swallow, isn't it? It's much more difficult to get over that. When the wicked do seem to prosper, the wicked seem to get away with it, the wicked seem to prolong their lives and their wickedness, and the righteous appear to be cut short. And we are returning to that subject, one that Solomon has addressed before, because that is the topic of verses 10 through verse 15. Now, as we've seen before, sometimes Solomon picks up the same subject multiple times. Each time he kind of examines it from a bit of a different perspective. So we've talked about this inequity before. We saw it back in chapter 3. We saw it back in chapter 7 where he speaks of the, of, of, of the wicked prolonging his life and his wickedness and the righteous dying at an early age. Solomon has lamented this a couple of different times in Ecclesiastes. But every time he picks it up to talk about it, it is as if he kind of turns the item from and views it from a little bit of a different perspective. And that's what we get here. He's, he's not done talking about this injustice and it comes up again later on in Ecclesiastes, but each time he offers something of a different perspective. This time he gives us divine wisdom on the subject. Because remember, in the context of Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, Solomon is commending wisdom to us. So now he raises this issue of injustice and inequity and it happening to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked and to the wicked according to the deeds of the righteous. But now he's going to give us something of a divine perspective on it, something of an eternal perspective. As, as he's commending wisdom to us, he wants us to view this same issue, which he has raised previously. He wants us to view it from the perspective of wisdom. What does wisdom tell me about this inequity in life? That is what is before us. So as we look at verses 10 to 11, we're going to notice the perversity of sinners, the perversity of the wicked. And then in verses 12 through 15, we're going to notice the perspective that comes by faith or the eternal perspective, or we could call it the perspective of the righteous. This is the proper perspective on this issue that Solomon gives us in verses 12 through 15. So let's begin with verses 10 and 11, the, per- the perversity of the wicked. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were soon forgotten in the city where they did this. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. There's so much wisdom in those two verses. Now, in verse 10, there is a translation issue that we need to be made aware of. You'll notice if you are um, reading a translation that is the NIV or the ESV, that it's, verse 10 is translated a little differently than what I just read to you. What I just read to you in the NASB says, So that I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were soon forgotten in the city where they did this. This too is futility. The, the key word there is forgotten. If you're reading the NIV or the NA, uh, sorry, the ESV, the English Standard Version of the NIV, then it translates a little bit differently. The ESV reads this way. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. The NIV follows that translation. Then too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. So the NIV and the ESV use the word praised. The NASB has the word forgotten. Now that's, that's two radically different translations, isn't it? Two radically different words. How do we get that? How is it that the ESV and the NIV have one translation of that and the NSB another translation? Because it is entirely different to do this wickedness and then be forgotten than it is to do this wickedness and then be praised. Those are, seem like on opposite extremes. And what it boils down to is one Hebrew word, actually two Hebrew words that we find here that In some ancient manuscripts, it has the word for forgotten. In other ancient manuscripts, it has the word for praised. Now, in the Hebrew, these words look very similar, and there is only one letter's difference between the two. So to give you an English equivalent, imagine the word hot and the word hat. Hot and hat. 
Okay? And you can see how an A would look very similar to an O, right? So what most textual critics believe happened was that at some point it read either, I'm keeping this in our English example, hot or hat, and the manuscript was unclear at that point because of a fold or a crease or something, and so they had to make a choice, but whether that hot or whether it is hat, and it could go either way. Now, it is hard to think of a context in English where hot and hat could be interchangeable, right? You put on your hot, you put on your hat, you go out and you grab your hot, or man, it was hat outside. I mean, those two are radically different, but in, in this context, it could be translated, it could be Solomon could have used the word forgotten, in which case he would mean this. The wicked did all of this activity in the city, and they were buried, and then they were forgotten. As if nobody even remembered all the wicked deeds that that individual did. So he would be lamenting that. As if we should remember his wickedness, and not just remember the good things that he did. Uh, we, we, we ought to enshrine his wickedness as part of his memory, lest we forget, unless we commit the same errors. Or he could be saying that he does all of this wickedness in this city, and then among those very people, among whom he did the wicked deeds, they praise him. And this is futility. Now notice, so which is it? Is it that they should be, that they were praised or that they were forgotten? In this case, I think that the ESV has a better translation because I think the context would fit the idea of the wicked being praised in this, in this context and not the wicked being forgotten. I can't bring myself to say twice in two months that the NIV has a better translation, so I will say that the ESV, I think, has a better translation at this point, that they were, that they were praised and not that they were forgotten. What is Solomon lamenting? He is lamenting that they did wickedness. This is, this is a, he's bemoaning this fact. So what fits best? That they would be forgotten, that their names would be lost to obscurity, and they would be remembered no more? Now that's kind of what we would hope. We would hope that the wicked would just be lost in darkness and their names forgotten for eternity and obscured in darkness. That's what we would desire. But when they are praised amongst the very ones whom they committed these wicked deeds, that is what is galling. It is galling to see the wicked praised after they die. And that, I think, is what Solomon is describing. So the ESV would be a better translation there. And so he says in verse 10, I have seen the wicked buried, and I loaned us the description, so they've died, but notice the description that he gives in verse 10, they used to go in and out from the holy place. What is that describing? That word holy place could describe the city of Jerusalem, referring to the holy city, or it could describe the holy place, meaning the temple. And it seems best to take Solomon's words here, based on how he uses this elsewhere in other contexts, as referring to the temple. So these are people who were wicked, and they had done their wicked deeds, but they trafficked among the righteous. They went in and out of the temple, and nobody noticed. And by going in and out of the temple, they profaned that holy place. They gave a bad reputation to all of the other righteous. These are people, they might be priests, or they might be leaders, and they come in and out of the holy place, and they worship with the people of God, and yet their wickedness is well known. These are rank hypocrites who come in and out of the holy place, trafficking amongst the holy, and even though they themselves are profane. This would this would just add more bitterness to the gall of these individuals who have lived this way in the city. And then after they are died and after they are buried, they're what? They're praised. They're lauded as heroes. You ever have this happen at a funeral that you attend? This happens every day in our country, right? Where people gather together to bury some scoundrel who's whose wickedness and immorality is almost notorious, and then you show up for the funeral, and what do they do? The guy up front waxes on and on about how great of an individual this person was, and they forget all the bad things that they did and make up a few good things that they did, and, and they make it sound as if this person had 
founded the soup kitchen and sheltered the homeless and fed the hungry and spent their vacations in, in Calcutta building houses for poor families. And you start to ask yourself, am I at the right funeral? Because I, I know this person. Certainly, I cannot be the only one here who is well aware of this person's wickedness. And it seems unjust, doesn't it? Let me give you another example. There are, there are times when celebrities and politicians and media celebrities and newsmakers who oppress people and lie to people, and then when they die, they get enshrined, almost as if they are, are gods in our own age, right? This is, this is so unjust and so wrong. Let me give you a, a historic example, because this has happened throughout history. Let me give you a historic example. Do you know where Charles Darwin is buried? In Westminster Abbey. In the floor of a church is his tomb, buried right next to Isaac Newton, And there is a priest and staff who walk out and they put new flowers on the tomb every so often and he is honored right in the North Hall of Westminster Abbey. A man whose godless ideology has resulted in the death of millions of people and the suffering of untold millions more. And he is hailed as a hero and buried under the floor of Westminster Abbey. Now on the other side of that extreme, have you ever heard of John Knox? He was the Scottish reformer who almost single-handedly led the Reformation in Scotland. John Knox preached, and he founded churches, and he led the Reformation, and he stood for the truth. The the Queen of Scotland was in fear of John Knox because of his power in the pulpit and his ability to influence people. And he preached, and he died a faithful man. You know where John Knox is buried? Behind St. Giles Cathedral, under parking space 23 in their parking lot, there's a little stone that says the burial spot of John Knox. And when the car backs off of the parking spot, at parking spot 23, you can see his burial place. This is futility. That among the very people who were witnesses to somebody's wickedness, a man like Charles Darwin could be praised. And that he could still be praised and honored. If we had any sense, we would dig up his body, burn his bones, and throw him to the wind. And try and erase from our memory every, every reference to that wicked individual and his godless ideology. But we don't. Sometimes among the very people who suffer at the hands of that wicked individual, that wicked individual's praise. I'll give you another example. Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Her racist ideology, following on the racism of Charles Darwin, he wrote a book about favored races, her racist ideology is well known. In her interviews, in her books, in her her pamphlets, in her literature, in her uh, articles, everything that she wrote, she she was openly racist, openly a vowed geneticist. She believed, and she said this openly, that black people were human weeds that needed to be exterminated. It is no accident that 80% of Planned Parenthood's clinics are within walking distance of a black or Hispanic neighborhood. That is no accident. She's openly racist. And yet, although she is single-handedly responsible for the death of more black and Hispanic babies than probably any other single individual in human history because of the organization that she has founded, She is hailed as a goddess among the black community and in our own day. Does that just not gall you? Does that just not make you want to vomit? And if somebody is praised and honored like that, when the wicked are exalted among the sons of men, is it any any surprise to us that these type of injustices should happen? Why is it that this happens? How is it that this happens? Verse 11 is the answer. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. 
Now you say, I, I quoted that from memory. I did. I memorized that a long time ago. Because the sentence, follow Solomon's logic, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, this results in the hearts of men being fully set in them to do evil. And here's what Solomon is saying. Because there is not a quick connection between the evil deed that is done and the justice that comes to that individual for doing the evil deed, this ends up incentivizing evil and emboldening them in their hearts to fully perpetuate even more evil. In other words, justice delayed incentivizes more iniquity. And this is how it works out. Now, primarily in terms of our context here, Solomon is describing the delay in divine justice. Don't mix that. He is not necessarily speaking of civil courts and civil trials, though the principle certainly applies to that. He is talking here in terms of divine justice. Because men commit an evil deed, and heaven seems to be silent. There's no justice. There's no divine retribution for what they do. Because there is this delay between the evil that is done and the results or the consequences of that evil, this ends up emboldening in people a desire to do evil so that they become ingrained in doing that evil. Imagine a world, if you will, in which there were immediate consequences for doing evil and immediate rewards for doing right. Things would be a lot different, right? In, in the book that I wrote, The Prosperity of the Wicked, I give the example of somebody who lies, and when they lie, their mouth just feels like it is on fire to the point where it almost would drive them insane within 30 minutes. Imagine that every time somebody lied, their mouth felt like it was they were gargling lava for one full hour after that. Do you think the trials would be a little bit different, look different? Do you think the presidential debates would look a little bit different? If that were the case, if every time somebody lied, that happened, if there were immediate consequences for doing a wicked deed in terms of justice that happens, would things be differently? And conversely, what if the reward for doing good came to us immediately so that we enjoyed the, the reward for the righteous deed that we do? Then we wouldn't be incentivizing righteousness and non-incentivizing, the opposite of incentivizing, the wickedness. But as it is, doing the right thing and the righteous thing is often the more difficult thing in the short term. And the results of that often we just have to take on faith, that this will go well for me if I do this good deed. And sometimes doing the wrong thing, doing the sinful and wicked thing, produces immediate gratification and immediately good results, even though the long-term consequences of it are horrible. And so what Solomon is saying is since there is this delay between the deed that is done and the justice that comes, this hardens people's hearts to do evil. Verse 11, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. They desire to do evil. They begin to plan and purpose evil. This is true not just in, the, not just in culture and society in terms of divine justice, but think of it as true also in terms of civil justice. As one commentator said, the more, the more slowly that justice is done. The more slowly the justice system moves, the more the crime rate rises. That's true. You can commit a deed and you know that, look, if I get arrested, I'm going to get out on bail. And it might be two or three months before I end up back in a courtroom to be arraigned. And after that, six months later, I have the court date that is set. And that could be delayed for a year as the trial goes on. And finally, three years from now, we might get some sort of a sentence handed down. And then I just appeal it or they appeal it. And so we get caught up in this whole fiasco again while it goes through a whole appeals process. This could go on from ten for 10 years until I'm finally given a death sentence. But then that death sentence, I mean, there may be a stay on that execution. There may be a stay on that consequence or... A, the, the administration may change. I may get somebody favorable to letting me out. It might be, and then I might sit on death row for 10 or 15 years after I have, I'm finally sentenced 
10 or 15 years after I actually committed the crime. It might be 20 years before I'm executed for that. Do you think that that incentivizes evil? It absolutely incentivizes evil. Because people think, they deceive themselves into thinking that as the wheels of justice grind slowly, at some point I'm going to fall through the cracks. I'm going to fall out of that. And I've gotten away with it before, and I might be able to get away with it again. And so they roll the dice, assuming that they can commit the evil deed and may never, ever actually be punished for it. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. They do it with brashness. Solomon says these men went in and out of the holy place. They were walking in and out of the temple. That is a boldness and a brashness and a profaneness to their wickedness and to their sin. And they are buried and then in the very city that they are praised. And how is it that the wicked are praised? Because the sentence against their evil deed is not executed quickly. And so their hearts are fully set to do evil. And even in praising those who do evil, we're doing evil. Remember Romans 1, the very last verse of Romans chapter 1 says that those who commit these deeds, which he lists in the previous four or five verses, those who commit these deeds are worthy of death. So are those who approve of them. When you applaud evil, you are worthy of the exact same damnation as that individual who commits the deed. So these people who are praising the one who is wicked, they're doing so because their hearts are fully set to do that evil. They love the wickedness, they applaud the wickedness, and their hearts are set to do wickedness. There's so much wisdom in verse 11. So much wisdom in that verse. It applies to societies, in houses, in households, and in churches. But I don't want to slow down. I do want to keep going so we can see the flow of this text. Now I want you to notice the perspective that Solomon gives in verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. We're going to notice first of all here what we know and then what we see and then what we are to do. Here's what we know. It's in verses 12 and 13. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Now this seems in stark contrast to what is said in verses 10 and 11. So much so... so, so Try it again. So much so that one commentator that I read says that Solomon here is taking, he is giving voice to an opposite perspective from his own. And that's Tremper Longman. Tremper Longman, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, believes that basically everything Solomon says is from that cynical perspective. He doesn't get anything right. And anytime it sounds like Solomon is getting something right, he's actually speaking from the perspective of somebody else that he doesn't like. Right? So that's what he would say Solomon is doing here. But I don't think that that's what Solomon is doing. I think Solomon is giving to us a divine perspective on this. He is saying, though we see the wicked buried and we see them praised amongst those and by those who were the victims of their wickedness, though that is the case and that is what we see here in this life, I know, verse 12, that it will not go well with the sinner, even though he should do evil a hundred times and lengthen his life. And he is describing there somebody who is... He's describing there a constancy in this doing of evil. He does evil and he gets away with it. And he does evil and he gets away with it. And he does evil and though he should be executed, he gets away with it again. And he continues in his evil deed over and over and over. And even though he should do it a hundred times, and by doing it a hundred times, he ends up seems to lengthen his life, lengthen his days. He gets away with it and he keeps living. Even though he should be executed for it, he keeps living and he continues on in it. Solomon says, I know that it will not be well with him. Ultimately, I know that it will be well with the one who fears God. And in the context, what does it mean to fear God? Solomon is not describing here a terror that we have of God, though there is an element of holy terror in the idea of fearing God. Michael Eaton describes the fear of God as this, that awe, and I love this definition, the awe and holy caution that arises 
from the realization of the greatness of God. Think about that. The awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. You realize how great God is, and yes, you stand in awe, but there is a holy, sanctified caution in the way that we approach God. We don't do so flippantly because we know that He is holy, because we know that He is great, and so there is in there an element of terror because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in the context of wisdom literature and prophecy in the, or pro, uh, poetry in the Old Testament, the idea of fearing God is also tied in with obeying Him and obeying His commandments. As Solomon says at the end of this book, we are to fear God and keep His commandments. Those two things are linked in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Fearing God, that holy awe and reverence for God that results in obedience. And that is what Solomon is describing. It will go well for the one who obeys God and not for the one who does evil a hundred times and gets away with it. One act of obedience, it will go well with that man. A hundred acts of wickedness, even though he may prosper in all of them, he will not get away with that wickedness. That is what Solomon is describing. Verse 12, though he may do wickedness and evil a hundred times and still lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who have that holy awe and reverence of God that is marked by obedience and trust in him. It will go well with that individual. Verse 13, it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Now hold on a second. Didn't verse 12 say that he lengthens his days by committing evil a hundred times and then verse 13 says he won't lengthen his days? It kind of seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Whenever we read a contradiction like that, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that Solomon put those two things right there? Because it's not like Solomon forgot what he wrote one verse earlier. He's well aware of that. So what does he, what does he mean when he says, though he may do evil a hundred times and lengthen his days, I know that he will not lengthen his days like a shadow. He's putting those two things back to back in order to contrast them. In verse 12, Solomon is describing the wicked from the earthly perspective. He's looking at the wicked and he sees the wicked commit an act of wickedness and get away with it and get away with it and he keeps living in it and doing it over and over and over and over. There's no divine retribution. And it seems like this just goes on forever without end. He does it a hundred times. So from the earthly perspective, it looks as if he is prospering in it. From the earthly perspective, it looks as if he is getting away with it and things are going well with it. But Solomon says in verse 13, from the divine perspective, I know that it will go well with the one who fears God and who fears God openly. It will not go well with him, and he will not actually lengthen his life by his wickedness. That is the divine perspective. The divine perspective says the wicked will be cut short, and they will not ultimately, eternally prosper in that wickedness. And he uses the analogy of like a shadow. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow. That's kind of an interesting analogy or an interesting picture. When are shadows lengthened? This is the key to part of the answer. When are shadows when, when do shadows start to get longer? They start to get shorter in the morning, right? The sun comes up, the shadow gets shorter until you're standing on your shadow. But then when does the shadow start to get longer? As evening draws near, right? When the day is getting over and it is almost over and night is about to fall, the shadow gets longer and longer and longer and longer until there's no more shadow. Until the sun is down and the shadow is no more. That's how David uses the analogy of a, or this imagery of a shadow in Psalm 109, verse 23. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like the locust. He's describing his own death. Psalm 102, verse 11. My days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. Listen, you're standing outside and you notice that your shadow is getting longer and longer and longer. Let it remind you of your death because that's how the scripture uses that imagery. Right? So every day you see the shadow getting longer and you think, I'm going to die. 
Because just as the day is, as if you needed another reminder, other than the creaky knees and the bad back, as the day gets uh, toward night and the sun is starting to set and the day is almost over, closer and closer and closer and closer, your shadow gets longer and longer and longer. And so Solomon is saying he will not lengthen his days like a shadow is lengthened, going on and on and on and on as the day draws closer for the sun to go down, for the man to die. It's not actually, he's not going to actually postpone death and he's not actually going to prolong his life by his wickedness. Even though from the earthly perspective, it looks as if he will, from the heavenly perspective, he most certainly will not. That's why those two things are put there back to back. So what is it that we know? We know that we have to, we have to judge this issue from the divine perspective because Solomon is giving to us both the human and the divine and we have to be able to rest in the divine perspective. Now look at what we see on earth, verse 14. There is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say this too is vanity, futility. He is simply restating the problem there for us as he describes to us again what we see. What is it that we see, verses 10 and 11? We see the wicked going on with their wickedness and praised after they're buried. What is it that we know? We know that they will not get away with it. They will not lengthen their days, even though from a human perspective it appears as if they will. And then verse 14, here is what we see on the earth. Notice that verse 14 says there is a futility that is done where? On the earth. This is not a futility that is done in the heavens. This is not eternity. In this world, this is what happens. Verse 14. There are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. The righteous do their righteousness, and on this earth, they do not necessarily receive the reward for it. In fact, sometimes, life falls out to the righteous as if they had committed all of the deeds of the wicked. That just doesn't seem right. That perplexes us. Solomon is not giving to us the answer. He's giving to us a different perspective. He's, not, he's being honest about how things are in this life. Yes, Darwin is praised. John Knox is forgotten. Margaret Sanger is praised. Martin Luther is forgotten. John Calvin is forgotten. Augustine is forgotten. The great men of history are forgotten by most of the people. The wicked prosper and they are remembered and they are praised and they are memorialized and we celebrate their birthdays all throughout the calendar year and we have celebrations for them and demonstrations and marches. That's what the wicked get in this life, in this world. That's how it hurts. That's how it works. The righteous get what the wicked seem to deserve and the wicked seem to get what the righteous appear to deserve. That is the futility that is done on this earth. That is not the futility as it is in heaven. Matthew Henry writes this, Sinners herein, herein deceive themselves, for though the sentence be not executed speedily, it will be executed the more severely at last. Vengeance comes slowly, but it does come surely, and wrath is in the meantime treasured up against the day of wrath. Ultimately, the, this equation of what happens to the righteous and the wicked cannot be measured in terms of just this world because then we're left with verse 14 where this is what it is under the sun. We have to get the eternal perspective and remember that ultimately the wicked will not prolong their lives and their wickedness. Matthew Henry kind of gives us another a, a perspective on this from the eternal perspective. In a, I read a, ran across this quote in a book called The Prosperity of the Wicked. I would commend it to you. Matthew Henry writes this, All is well that ends well, everlastingly well, but nothing is well that ends ill. Did you catch that? All is well that ends everlastingly well. Not all is well that ends everlastingly ill. And he goes on to say this, The righteous man's afflictions end in peace, and therefore he is happy. The wicked man's afflictions, or man's enjoyments, 
end in destruction, and therefore he is miserable. That's the eternal perspective. So what do we do while living life in this world? Verse 15, we've looked at what we know and then what we see, verse 14, and now here's what we do. So I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given to him under the sun. This is another one of what we call the pleasure passages. There are six of them in Ecclesiastes. We've looked at four of them so far. This is number five. I'll quickly give you the references because I have underlined these and set them apart in my Bible so that I can see them as this theme is woven throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon returns to this time and again. You see these verses in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26, chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, chapter 3, verse 22, and Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20. And then we have it here in verse 15, chapter 8. And then the very last one is over in chapter 9, verse 9. Look across the page. Actually, it begins in verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. That's the last of the pleasure passages. Now, why is it that Solomon would say in verse 15 that I have commended pleasure? And by the way, there seems to be, in each of these, there seems to be a a progression throughout Ecclesiastes. Solomon begins the first pleasure passage by saying, look, there's really nothing better than this. No, do this. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 15. I commend pleasure. Notice the progression. There is a progression through the passage where he becomes more and more certain as this works out, spending more and more time explaining what this means. In the beginning, it's just sort of, well, this is better. This could be better. But by the end of the book, it is a hearty commendation of this pleasure. What type of pleasure is Solomon describing here? Tremper Longman in his commentary says that this is the expression of a cynical heart. The Solomon having observed how the wicked seem to prosper and get away with it, he just kind of throws up his hands at the end and says, well, you might as well just party then. I mean, that's all there is to it, right? The wicked are going to get what they wicked get, so just, just go on with life and just party and be merry and eat, drink, tomorrow you die. But it's not quite that cynical. That's, that's really not what Solomon is driving at. Neither is he describing a hedonistic, epicurean type of drunken, gluttonous orgy that you engage in. Not that type of pleasure. Whenever Solomon in Ecclesiastes describes pleasure in a negative way, he is talking about the epicurean, hedonistic, self-serving, selfish pleasure like he describes in chapter 2. And when Solomon describes pleasure in a positive way, as in here, he is describing the simple enjoyment of the gift that God gives us and recognizing that it comes from his hand as a gift and that we can and should enjoy it as an act of worship in accordance with all that God has given to us. We, we enjoy it as part of what God has given to us, as part of his great gift. And so he says, I commended pleasure, right? The enjoyment of the things that God has given to us For there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him. Eat, drink, and be merry. And really Solomon is answering the question, how is it that we live in a world where kings are tyrants? Chapter 8, verses 1 to 9 that we looked at last time. How is it that we live in a world where those in authority seem to oppress us? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do in a world where the evil do wickedness a hundred times and get away with it seem to prolong their lives? Where, the, where it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked. When all of this is so flip-flopped and so mixed up and so messed up and everything is so perverse, how are we to live in a world like that? This is the answer, verse 15. You enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. Why? Because we understand that we can delight and take joy in what God has given to us even while we wait for eternal justice to be done. So we have two choices. 
We can be dour and sour and bitter and get upset and watch Fox News and get a knot in the pit of our stomach and, and hate these people and want to overthrow everything and be mad all the time. So when somebody wishes you a great day, you, you give them a great day back, but it's got a scowl on your face. You can do that. Verse 15. Come in pleasure. Enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. He's blessed, us, blessed you with these things. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your food. Eat and drink and, and be merry and enjoy the merriment and the happiness. We can be happy in this world. We can be delighted in this world. We can take joy in the things that are in this world, even while we wait for eternal justice to come. That's ultimately what we're waiting for. We're waiting for eternal justice to come so that everything that is upside down be, is flipped right side up and everything is exchanged. And the righteous are given their reward and the wicked get their justice. And in the meantime, rather than being dour and sour and bitter and angry, commend pleasure. Eat and drink and enjoy the merriment that God has given. This is his gift to his people. And we can enjoy that pleasure and take delight in it. So how do we live? What do we learn from this passage about how we live in this upside down world? What would, what would wisdom tell us? It would tell us that we are to live in faith, knowing that this world is not the last of it, that there is a justice to come, there is eternal It will not go well with the wicked. They're praised and memorialized and buried in Westminster Abbey today. Ultimately, it will not go well with the wicked on that final day. That, that is the perspective of faith. Second, we live in fear, fear of God to keep his commandments, honoring him, knowing that it will be well with the one who fears God and who fears him openly. And third, we live with joy. Or if you want to keep the alliteration, felicity, happiness, faith, fear, and felicity. We live in joy enjoying the pleasure that God has given to us, enjoying the life that he has given to us while we wait in faith and in fear for eternal justice to be done. That is ultimately the hope of the believer in a world that has gone utterly insane. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are so thankful for the mercy that you have shown us in calling us out of a kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light of your dear son. You have redeemed us and this world is not our home. We take joy in that and delight in that. That is a comfort to your people, your elect, through all ages. And we're just grateful that we can own that and be part of that company that has been redeemed. And we know that there's coming a day when justice will be done. We pray that those who are yours may hear the call of the Savior to escape that eternal justice. You may gather together all your people, glorify your great name by gathering together the reward for the suffering of your Son so that we may delight in our salvation and we may delight in that justice when it takes place. We look forward to that kingdom and we pray that you give us grace to enjoy the blessings that you have provided in this life, to enjoy the simple things that you have given to us, that we may do so to your honor and to your glory with an eye to that eternal kingdom when we will suffer this type of affliction no more and everything will be righted for all of eternity and we will give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Will you turn please to 1 Peter chapter 2. is for our communion service this morning. Remind you of this passage before we partake of communion. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you are continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This passage describes in very succinct way what it is that we celebrate and observe with the Lord's Supper. That the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins in his own body on the tree. That he died in our place. The Bible teaches that the death of Christ was a substitutionary, voluntary atonement for sins. It was a judicial payment. That Christ came and he paid the actual price for actual sinners who actually sinned so that he might actually redeem them for his glory. And that he bore the wrath and the penalty of the sin for the sin for all who will believe on him for all of etern- from all of human history. People who have yet to come to faith in Christ, he bore their sin. You and I who sit here, who have placed our faith in Christ, he bore our sin. All of the elect of ages past who have believed upon God and been given righteousness have had son, have enjoyed that righteousness because of what Christ has done. He paid the price for us. It was an actual payment. He bore that sin. Didn't just make us savable so that if we do good things and we do righteous deeds or if we believe or if we do X, Y, and Z, that we will be saved. He actually paid the penalty for our sin. A vicarious substitutionary atonement. So communion is for those who have participated in that death of Christ through repentance and faith and have had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them for those who have been born again. So if you are not a born-again believer here today, you have never trusted in Christ, you do not know what it means to be saved, come and talk with me after the service or one of the other elders. Be glad to talk to you about that. But in the meantime, please let the cup pass from before you. This is, this is not for unbelievers. It was not intended for unbelievers. There's nothing saving about this. This is our symbolic memorial of what Christ has done for his people, for those who are his, for those for whom he died. But before we as his people partake of communion, we must examine ourselves and pray and confess our sin. This is not for perfect people. This is for repenting people, for repenting believers. So let's bow our heads together. We'll pray together, and then I'll ask the ushers to come forward. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.